Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? This is a slightly different kind of podcast today. Typically, I interview guests who are in some way making a difference through their efforts to deal with the causes or effects of climate change and other environment-related challenges. Today's podcast is no different, but the approach is very different. In today's podcast, I interview Mario Vasilescu about information pollution. What does information pollution have to do with climate change in the 21st century imperative? Well, as you will hear in this episode, Mario argues that if we're going to deal with climate change, we first need to be able to agree on reality. And given the ever-increasing difficulty of internet information pollution, that is becoming ever more harder to do. So in this podcast, Mario and I talk about information pollution, what it is, why we need to deal with it, and how we can deal with it in order to have a more effective conversation about how to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative. Mario is a robotics engineer turned humane technologist and media ecologist. He describes himself as obsessed with rethinking how we measure and value attention and writes and speaks on the subject where it intersects with the future of work, media, and education. He is now putting his thinking into practice with his innovative and award-winning company and social media platform, Redocracy.com, where he is both CEO and CPO. Redocracy rewards and recognizes users for being well-informed and helps users track and improve their content consumption. As Mario says, Redocracy is like a Fitbit to track your information diet. Mario graduated from Ontario Tech, previously known as the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, in 2012, majoring in mechatronic mechanical engineering with a major in business management. During his final year, he won two national competitions in social media innovation and the future of work, which landed him a role at a think tank of a multinational HR and change management consulting firm based out of Paris, France, where he continued digging into these subjects to map emerging trends related to the role of different generations and technology at work. Mario has led digital projects for organizations at the national level in both Canada and France, and has spoken about emerging trends at leading media conferences, as well as directly to the leadership teams of some of the world's largest media organizations. When he isn't working in Redocracy, you can find Mario enthusiastically cooking or eating, playing or watching basketball or hockey, writing, making art, and almost always listening to one of his many theme playlists. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Mario. I've really been looking forward to this interview. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it as well. Long time coming. Most of the guests I interview on this show are typically directly involved in tackling climate change, but you're taking a different approach. As I mentioned in my introduction, you're arguing that to solve environmental pollution and climate change, 
We need to solve information pollution first. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, of course. And I think it's just important to set this uh, foundation. Uh, what does that mean? And I think the simple idea is how and why do we take action on things that threaten us, right? Like, how do we get to care about climate change? How do we get to take it seriously and then actually act on it? Like, that doesn't just magically happen. We don't have a magical impulse that says, like, well, this is the thing we have to act on, unfortunately. And it's a result of consistently getting the right information and everyone else getting the right information so that we can actually do something about it together. And so the question is, what happens if we aren't getting the right information? Or worse, we're getting really bad information most of the time. And that's the core idea with the information pollution and the concept of it. And just to kind of help that along, I think there's an important aspect to pull apart, which is coming back to the idea of why we take action and how we kind of assess threats. And I think in that regard, it's worth thinking back to our ancestors. So going all the way back um, and the information they worked with and the threats they assessed, um, they were extremely direct and tangible. Like there's, there's a line you know, a tiger or some other animal that's going to kill right. me. That's right. Run away or throw a spear. Exactly. I can process that threat. I can act on it. I can throw the spear. Or, you know, a bit more abstract, but my elders can pass on very specific pieces of wisdom that, again, are usually very applicable. Right? You, you get it. It's not something that you have to really think about. Where does it apply? So in that world, we had very little distance between the source of the information and then us using it. So it's very applicable, very tangible, but our society has evolved, right? And that gap between the source of the information and the amount of information has, has just exploded. And I don't think we even appreciate how much there is now that we're swimming in. I think IBM a few years ago told us that the entirety of global knowledge is doubling every 12 months. And thanks to smart objects, it's estimated to double, double about every 12 hours. Wow. Right. So like, just like that's significant, huge, huge volume. Yeah. And so there's been this disintermediation between the proximity of information and us. And that's really what we call the information commons, right? It's this shared massive space that we all share together. It's our knowledge, our media, and we all plug into it together. And a lot of that information is now abstract, super abstract. It's about things that have almost nothing to do with us directly, like immediately day to day, right now in the moment. They're not really tangible most of the time. And so if we're essentially relying on this huge space to make decisions, decide what to care about, and ultimately what are threats to us, you know, like the, the new version of the lion we have to throw a spear at, whether it's climate change or something else, what happens if that space, which is now our collective brain to assess these threats, is absolutely flooded with, with noise and distraction and, and like maybe the opposite of what we're supposed to do, we basically become paralyzed um, both individually and as a society. When you say pollution, give me an example of pollution, like a tangible example of pollution. Yeah. I mean, pff, misinformation, clickbait. And, and it's also this idea of, of noise versus signal, right? Like if you're plugged into this information comms or even just having a conversation in communication, whether it's direct or through, through radio, right? There's, there's this idea of what is the signal part we can make sense of and what is just the, the noise around it. And I think this information pollution comes back to the idea of information that is essentially noise. Like you can make sense of it, but how does it actually help us? Or is it just like a massive distraction? The sheer amount of celebrity gossip tabloids online. 
the sheer amount of, when I say clickbait, I mean, we've seen it all, right? Like 51 year old woman in blank, your neighborhood, uh, magical solution, doctors hate her. Like all that stuff, that's pollution because we have a finite amount of attention. When, when our ancestors and, you know, up to 50 years ago even, were dealing with information, there was a surplus of attention. We, we had plenty of attention to go around. And now it's the opposite. So that pollution matters. And it's not a background pollution the way we think of pollution as being some poison in the water or in the air. It's actually active. It's designed to grab our brains. Yes. It's designed to give us a dopamine jolt when we push that red button. Yeah, and I think that's a useful, it's worth coming back to this analogy because, you know, the idea that the pollution, it's kind of like, you know, in the real world, physical world, where we're dealing with, you know, um, atoms instead of bits, we have fossil fuel subsidies where, you know, essentially companies are being encouraged to pollute in a way. They're, it's making it easier for them. And the idea is to imagine in this information commons, this space we share together in our minds that we make decisions with, imagine it was like 10 times worse than that, where it, you were part of the business model, not just subsidies, part of the business model was inherently to just pollute as much as possible. That's kind of what we're dealing with. There's the same incentive right now because the, the incentive is to get people to buy something or to go yes. somewhere, right? So yes. what creates it or who creates it? What's what's driving it? Is, is it simply just a corporate requirement to keep uh, revenues grinding along? Is that, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? I mean, it is in terms of the companies that are predominantly behind it when we think of big tech, whether it's Facebook or Google, but it's really bigger than that. It's, it's the monetization of the whole system. Before we get to them worrying about how these companies are making money, yeah. um, it's really how the system works. And I think it's worth coming back to that. Yeah, anyone can do it, no matter how big or small you are. Use the same techniques, yeah. Exactly. It's what we've been So taught. the whole system's filled with these yeah. people randomly doing this stuff all the time, 24-7. Exactly. I mean, ultimately, it's, it comes back to how is information monetized. It's not free to maintain websites. These publishers need to make their money somewhere. It is an extension of what we had with newspapers, where again, there was a, you know, the classifieds and the advertising. It's an extension of that, but it's, it's much scarier because when you hear the term surveillance capitalism, which if you don't know, it's this idea that it's capitalism based on spying us constantly. So there's as much data as possible to sell to us maximally. That, that's surveillance capitalism. And that's a lot different than ads that are kind of contextual. Like maybe you open up the paper and they know that since, you know, I don't know, you read Politico, if there was an ad there, this is the type of thing you'd probably want to see. Or you're, you know, a fly fishing magazine, you have something specific in there. This is about, no, it's much more than that. We're, we're spying on you. And so to do that, there's kind of two things that need to happen. One is I just need as many views to happen as possible because every single view of a page is essentially an opportunity for an ad. So that's already money. So I need to get you to share things as much as possible. I need to get you hooked coming back. I need you to react compulsively because each time you react, that creates a new view. It's just like volume, volume, volume. But the other thing is in doing so, by getting you to take all that action, we're getting more data points. And so there's, these are the kind of the two sides of it. Um, Tim Wu had this book I, I recommend called The Attention Merchants. And he talks about the, you know, the history and now the, the modern state of, of people who transact in your attention. 
And I think the, the point I always like coming back to is this idea of attention multipliers. So having, you're effectively in this economy where you make money just by having more page views and reactions, you're really printing money effectively if you can just get people to produce more content and react more, regardless of what it takes. I don't care you know, if it polarizes people or if it depresses them or it gets them hooked, we just need the volume, right? And, and that's, that's the danger of the system. And, and it's so ironic when, when Tim Berners created the World Wide Web in, what was it, 1989, mm -hmm. he envisaged this wonderful opportunity for people to connect yep. and have conversations about things that were important. Yes. And now it's devolved to this complete mayhem of, of what you're calling information pollution. Yeah. So what's incentivizing the noise and, and this hysteria? I mean, why do people seem to fall for it so easily it is, is it is it so tuned to our neural structures that that it's impossible not to um it is you know a science uh you know i think tristan harris talks about this when he when he says uh it's it's our it's our primitive you know brains going up against a machine with like four trillion data points a super machine <laughs> and ai right. and it's like well good luck figure you out the, that's right yeah yeah the caveman versus mm -hmm. the machine fundamentally, but I think the biggest problem, which isn't talked about enough, is the reason it works so easily is because there's no context or feedback to it. There's no, you know, if you wander into a grocery store and you are thinking about what you're gonna buy to make dinner and what you're gonna eat, or you're driving by and you decide between the grocery store and fast food, there's two things at play. One is simply the fact that when we gorge ourselves in a certain way, it's going to start showing up in our bodies pretty clearly, pretty quickly. So that makes it very different versus our minds, which it's very insidious. You know, you don't, that's not so obvious. Your, your mind doesn't get greasy in a way you can see. It doesn't get fat in a way you can see. <laughs> it does <right>? break out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. And so there's that, but there's also, you know, the systems we've built around that, right? There's nutrition labels and nutritionism. It, it, it's, it's, you know, some people now talk about having nutrition labels for news and content. I think it's more than that. It's, it's as if nutritionism didn't even exist as a, as a concept for people to think about. So the example I like to give is you can go online now and there is absolutely nothing to make you think about your behavior and like second guess what you're doing except your own guilt and your own conscience, right? Like you could, you could get sucked into a black hole about reading, I don't know, tabloid gossip about Kim Kardashian and her family. And you could do two hours of that and nobody will ever really know and it won't matter for anything. And so when that's the case, when there's a traceless way to spend your time and your attention, naturally we become really apathetic about it and fundamentally dysfunctional because we're just not thinking about how we spend our time. And so what makes it so easy is the fact that it's there's no feedback, it's mindless, and also it's frictionless. So you know, I'm sure we'll get to this in this conversation, but it's, it's this idea that we can talk about regulation all we want, but as long as it's made so incredibly easy for anybody to just consume and, and spread the noise, we're going to be in trouble. So basically what you're saying then is unless we can deal with this, this sort of mind pollution, mind grabbing pollution, we're not going to be able to have a coherent discussion about how to deal with climate change. Exactly. We need all hands on deck to figure it out, and we can't have it if the internet is, is the system that is the internet now is, is designed yeah. to I take us somewhere else, like to watch kittens or to, to see celebrities. Yeah. 
Look, I, I mean, the average person, you know, Craig, how, how, how many hours would you like to sleep on an, on a, you know, an average day? What, eight hours, seven hours? Yeah, seven, yeah, seven right. hours I try and yeah, get yeah. in because, yeah, yeah. because I, I've heard, I've heard if I don't spend seven hours, I'm going to get Alzheimer's guarantees like, oops, I'm spending seven hours no matter what. <laughs> yes, I, same, thinking the same thing, self-preservation. But, you know, the bottom line is, okay, so seven hours out of your day, 24 hours. So we've got, what, 17 hours to work with. Yeah. The average American is spending between eight and 13 hours a day on media. Oh, okay? wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So, and that's everything, you know. That means TV, there's a lot spending more than that. Yeah, pr probably. Like constantly, right? And so the question then is, you know, coming back to your point, we need all hands on deck. If we think of the population of Earth, let's, you know, let's say bring it down to 100 people. And in those 100 people, instead of having 100 of them thinking coherently and in a straight way to, you know, get going, you instead have <laughs> of their 17 waking hours between 8 and 13 are just in this in this quicksand of distraction. And, you know, 30% of it is telling them to do the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing together. Yeah. You're just going to end up, you know, stuck on your, in the same spot. So what do we do? Well... Um, is, is, isn't that what you're all about right now? Yeah, that is what I'm all about. Uh, so we have Redocracy, our platform, and really what there, there's two things we're trying to do. And I think everybody needs to do these. This is, it's not just about us doing this. We are also trying to be advocates to let other people know that they can certainly do this as well. It's a systemic thing. So first of all, it's the business model. We talked about who is incentivizing this. Why is it happening? Why is there just so much noise? And that comes back again to monetizing information through advertising. So if I give you a really nice piece of content, really thoughtful, well-written piece, in the current system, having that be long form on a single page and you know thoughtful could actually be detrimental to you making money. You would want to split it out across multiple pages. You want to have a clickbait title. You want to make it really short and crisp when they get onto the next piece of content. So that obviously is a system where the quantity actually is more important than the quality. So what we're kind of doing with Redocracy is first of all saying, well, let's hold on a second. Our attention to information currently isn't being valued for the information itself because it's all about the advertising around it. Or, or at best, you know, we're doing a bit better now with subscriptions, but ultimately it's still secondary. The idea would be to take our attention to information and map it onto the knowledge economy instead. And to say, well, I, you know, you can give your attention to information and have it sucked away to some third party and you get nothing for it. And therefore the only value we can monetize around is what that third party gets. Or we can flip it and say, well, we're in a knowledge economy, which is largely based on reputation. What if we used your attention to information to prove your relationship to information and essentially help you prove yourself as a result? You know, if, if I spend you know, those eight to 13 hours a day and the content I consume ends up being something I can use for my identity. Well, hey, if I'm a consultant, if I'm a student trying to level up, if I'm a whole company, I can now use this to prove to everybody else my commitment, my continuing learning, my credibility on the subjects I care about. And so if we make the business model about that, that's really interesting because digital advertising is about $330 billion, which of, of course is nothing to sneeze at. That's a, quite a bit of change. But if we look at the knowledge economy, there's just way more money on the table. 
it, it becomes a much more lucrative way to monetize content and especially quality content. So, you know, some numbers I think worth keeping in mind. Every year, you and I and everybody else, especially students and knowledge workers, spend over a trillion dollars on degrees, certificates, and personal branding. And most of the activity on LinkedIn and Twitter. Across the world? Across the world, yeah. So it's already three times bigger than what we're getting out of globally out of digital advertising. Wow. Just on that. Yeah. To say nothing of the fact, just habits, if you look at all the people on Twitter, on LinkedIn, they're really just posturing, trying to convey how smart they are on different things half the time. And then business, in terms of like the knowledge economy broadly, in terms of knowledge-driven organizations, consulting firms, you know, foundations, professional services, people don't realize that these companies tend to spend 10% of their revenue on marketing. And that marketing is almost entirely towards trying to convey how smart their people are, right? Hosting webinars, promoting white papers, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, the sheer amount of money that's on the table to think about it in terms of the value to people and their reputation and their knowledge and the knowledge economy is so much more lucrative. So that's that's the first thing we can do. And, and I'm going to ask yeah. you to back up yeah. a bit. And yeah, okay, please. Just describe redocracy because both of us know all about it or I've, yes. I've learned about it through you and I'm using it now. So why yes. don't you tell our listeners about redocracy so it will make sense of some of the comments you just made. So it's actually a good segue because the, the, the business model is, you know, the, the big idea and then what it actually is. So we've created a platform where you can download a browser extension across any browser. Soon we're going to make our mobile apps public. They've been in testing for a while. And what it does is essentially we can tell if you're really paying attention to a piece of content online. And therefore we can quantify it, we can verify it, and we can catalog it for you. So all this time you're spending uh, you know, on articles and research journals, um, you know, soon it's going to be videos as well, YouTube specifically, like TED. Videos. I was going to ask yeah. you, when when does YouTube show up for this? Yeah, so really soon. Yeah, the next <laughs> Never one, mind, we'll, get, we'll yeah. talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the, the idea there is to use all this time you're spending anyways and suddenly uh, take it, prove it, and then put it somewhere. And we, we put it somewhere, which is a profile we call your knowledge profile. It's like an intellectual passport. And you choose what's public, of course. We have a number of privacy functions in place. You know, we're very proud, actually, how privacy first it is. Mozilla even gave us an award uh, you know, for our commitment to fixing the internet. And so you choose what's public, but then you, now you have this profile which you can use to prove your commitment and continuing learning and up-to-date credibility on the subjects you care about. And, and also share well-rounded, right? Like you can selectively make some of your personal interests uh, public to show you're not an automaton and somebody people would actually want to work with. So you have that, but then what we also do, and this kind of gets to my next point of what we're doing, uh, is is the the user experience of being mindful, right? We talked about the fact that there's this issue where you can consume mindlessly, and that's part of the problem. Well, what happens if suddenly you start having that feedback, and you know directly in the moment on the pages uh, that you're on, you'll notice this this little bubble up here. Which gives you yeah. So yeah. for listeners, when I <laughs> click on a page, like say I'm reading a Medium article or in a, any yeah. web page, yeah. After I've been reading it for oh I don't know half a minute or so, I notice a little green circle appear at the bottom right hand corner of the page, and as I keep reading, I glance down and there's a little green circle that's circling that circle that's sort of like a thermometer thing, and it's sort of tracking how I read through the article and it's, it's tracking it as 
has he completed the article yet? I'm like, yeah, I'll complete the article. Don't worry. <laughs> I start talking to it. And then you get to select where you put that article. And that's very, very handy because, you know, you read something that you like and where do you stick it in a, in a bookmark? And it's seven bazillion bookmarks. But this actually you can categorize as to, okay, I want to put it under social science or I want to put it under, you know, forest science or something like that or architecture. And so you've got, your page that sort of describes all of the things you've been reading and studying. Yeah. So I find it very and, helpful. And, you make public. Yeah, and that's well, yeah, public you, if you want yeah. it to be. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And you know, it, it's and it's variable. That's I think the part that's really important is that it's not like each page is only worth one credit towards a subject. If you read a long form piece, you're going to get eight credits towards that subject. And the credits aren't meant to be this, you know, little gimmick. I'm, you know. People, you know, like you, Craig, like you're, you're already credible. You don't need these little Thank bonus you. brownie points. <laughs> but, not everyone would agree. But, but <laughs> no, but I mean, it's it's actually not so much necessarily to just be this little gimmicky gamification thing, but it is a point of context, right? You, you see that, and at a glance, you say, huh, the ring is halfway around, and I've only gotten one credit, so this is only worth two credits. Am I just spending all my time on fluff? Or, oh, cool, this is like, this seems like it's like worth 20 credits. This is, I'm actually incentivized to now spend time on this long form piece and pay attention. So there's that mindfulness. Now, the, the other important part of the mindfulness is we have insights around this that we help you be more mindful. So we refer to them as kind of like Fitbit for your information diet. Um, parts of it are almost like Peloton for your mind in terms of the streaks. And this helps you understand, am I becoming more polarized? Like, uh, is my bias shifting left or right? What keywords are coming up? What sentiment is coming up that might be affecting my mental health. How much is news? Am I just gorging on news? No wonder I feel stressed these days. And so we track that for you to, to again, create that, that awareness that currently just does not exist. And on Sundays, we actually send you a roundup. So, so Greg, you should- Yeah, I know. I get this little news. report that tells yeah. me yeah. my reading, whether it's right or left. Yeah. I'll see something show up as right. What do you mean that's right? No, <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, it helps with that. It's, it's an important part. And there's, there's just one more thing I want to add on the, the mindfulness component. So we've, you know, when I describe bureaucracy and Craig, the helpful examples you gave as you use it, that's like the individual use case, but it becomes really potent also if you use it as a team, because obviously a lot of the money that exists in the world is in corporations. And it's important to think of it in that context too. Well, okay, how do I get recognized at work? How do people think of me? Do they just think I'm an engineer? Do they just think I'm an accountant? What else can I let them know that I'm passionate about to be recognized by through the time I spend. Again, the value of attention and the mindfulness of what it can do for you starts changing. But the point I really wanted to also add is publishers, right? There's two sides to this informational mindlessness right now, which is if you're consuming mindlessly, you're always going to respond easily to impulse and emotion. And so what happens if you're a producer of content? Like I mentioned, you know, quality actually becomes a detriment because it makes people think and, you know, you could just beat somebody in a race to the bottom by just appealing to emotion and, and impulse. And so then the quality content producer stands saying, well, you know, I'm going to go out of business. I better start dumbing this stuff down. I better make people angry. Like, that's going to be good. And so, you know, the, the mindfulness is also that any content publisher. So if you have a website and you produce content or a media organization and you're committed to facts and integrity, we can let you embed Redocracy natively in your site or app so that every single visitor is made aware that, hey, I can get something for this content. 
you know, I can get recognized in this community. They'll, they'll list me at the top and say, oh, this is the top reader on finance. I'm the top helper. And so again, it creates this mindfulness even at a publisher level where they can start incentivizing and rewarding and really focusing again on the quality and, and the people who, who it resonates with. In the past, when we've spoken, you've mentioned the idea of being more pragmatic with how we make change and making people care through more realistic means. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, so it's it's really in line actually with, with what I've just been describing with Redocracy. And ultimately, um, when I look at a lot of the efforts in the world to make change and make a positive impact, I'm often frustrated, obviously not because they're doing them, I, I support them always, but about how they go about it. And only because I become frustrated that it seems like they're not getting as far as they could if they were to take a different approach. And it just feels like a lot of modern change making happens from a position of guilt, where we tell people, hey, you know, think about your children and your children's children. Don't you feel guilty that you're letting the world burn? And don't you have a responsibility to do something about it? Or other things we ask people to do. There always seems to be this leaning towards the guilt and these things that aren't inherently uh, intrinsically beneficial to that person directly. And I guess it comes down to this idea of carrot versus stick, right? Like you can use the the stick to make people feel bad and threaten them and everything. Or you can use the carrot, which says, hey, this is actually just really good for you. What can we do about that? How can we use this to make you feel really, really good about it? And when we talk about the business model of information that leads to information pollution, or we talk about climate change in general, how can we shift the narrative so that we essentially take the desired endpoint where we say, okay, our endpoint is solve climate change, solve the climate crisis. That's our endpoint. But if we can't find a direct line to that, that doesn't make people, a lot of people feel defensive or like something's being taken away from them, or in the case of, you know, revenue online, what is the closest point we can draw to that desired endpoint, which gives us a path that also makes people feel like they're almost doing it for themselves. Like they're almost selfish about it. And that's kind of, with Redocracy, and I think this is a, it's been a big part of the philosophy of the Redocracy, and I think it's something that I wish more change-making initiatives applied as well, where with Redocracy, we're not saying, hey, you should really work on being more balanced in your diet because you're a good person and you want to be an intellectual and you want to be reasonable. That's, you know, we're all busy. We're, we're trying to get our upward economic mobility going. Like there's a lot going on that we're worried about making money for our families. There's a lot of priorities on the table. And so the redocracy is the idea, well, hey, you should do this because actually it's going to help you become more credible and it's going to make you make more people listen to you. And hey, you might even help you get a better job. And if you learn a lot, maybe you can monetize your profile on redocracy and start making passive revenue because you're such a helpful learner and distributor of trusted knowledge. So it becomes about you. And for corporations, like I said, like, oh, we're a smart team. We're going to transact in the best information and I'm going to get in the habit of this because it's going to help us close more clients. So it becomes this, in a way, selfish and, you know, in a way fitting with the capitalistic ideal, make myself more money and, and reputation, but it's getting us to the end point of people shifting their attitudes. So it's kind of how we think about it when I talk about this more pragmatic approach to impact. And I, and I do, I know it's, it's easier said than done in some cases, um, in a lot of cases. 
but uh, it is something I wish we'd see more of. What about policy? Policy for dealing with information pollution. We're seeing governments yeah. everywhere increasingly looking at taking action like we just recently saw with Australian Facebook. Yep. Can you um, speak to this? With pleasure. <laughs> uh, so I am a critic and a skeptic when it comes to a lot of the policy that's going on around these days. Whether we talk about Section 230 in the US, you know, now all the talk about deplatforming people, whether it's Trump or otherwise, you know, censorship is a big conversation, has, has been for a while and is, is becoming even more, you know, how, where's the free speech? How do we decide what's going on here? And the problem I've, I, I think that exists is we tend to take a very, a lot of the regulation is very patchwork band-aid type of stuff, right? Like, so for example, uh, when we talk about censorship and saying, oh, do the platforms have the right to be censoring people? We need to make the censorship logic more clear. It kind of reminds me of somebody who's in a boat, which has a, a you know a gaping hole in it, and they have the means to patch the hole, but they're just spending all their energy on the type of buckets they use. And they're like, okay, like we we got to keep scooping this water out, and everyone's like, but just don't look at the hole. Like we're not going to deal with it right now. And so, for example, that comes back to the idea of friction when we talk about regulation. Well, Andrew Yang, when he was running for president, he had a I think quite innovative, but also controversial idea where he said, I, you know, especially for people who uh, don't want government intervention, but he was suggesting uh, maybe we have a department of the attention economy and there's certain user interface principles that become regulated. That we regulate. Uh, yeah. 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 If, I thought that was very brave and forward thinking of him. Yeah. And I, and I know, of course, people then get defensive and say, oh, well, then I try to set up a website and here I am caught in, in red tape. It's like, no. It's very simple. If you have a, over 100,000 followers, let's say, then we'll deal with you. And that's very simple. If you've gotten to that size, you certainly have the resources to deal with it. And you have a responsibility to the attention you transact in. And so infinite scroll, I think, was the idea that Andrew Yang put forth saying, should it be allowed to have interfaces that have infinite scrolls so that you just mindlessly keep going without ever stopping? Should that be a thing that is regulated in text? So I think those types of things, you know, getting to the core, um, friction, right? Why is it so easy to share and pass on misinformation on Twitter and Facebook and all these places? It's because it's frictionless. You don't have to prove anything to anybody to get a massive audience. And that's just not how the real world works. Right. And so what do we do about, about regulating that? And also, I think the incentive structures, there are many, many organizations. I won't name names, but I've been in rooms with executives from the biggest media organizations who have openly said, we are aware that this is a game where polarization is profitable. Yep. Right? It's not this is not some conspiracy. This is this is the business that is happening right now. That's why you're seeving a it's, lot of publications. It's how it grabs the sides. amygdala, right? Like it yeah, grabs exactly. that, that reptile brain. Exactly. Back to what we talked about. And so I think there should be policy where again, we're not talking about punishing people who have 20 followers. It's absurd. It becomes a, a you know a police state. But if you have a huge audience, well, great power comes great responsibility, right? So if it's easy to prove that you are directly profiting yourself, so it's a self-interest, pure self-interest, pure financial self-interest, that you are profiting from polarization and misinformation and stirring the pot, hey, you guys should be taxable yeah. or fined, uh, you know, because otherwise people are just going to keep doing it. It's, it's like a massive loophole in our system. Yeah, I suspect 
fine is better than tax because if it's taxable, the government will encourage it That's true. because it will be a revenue stream. <laughs> Keep that going. Yeah, <laughs> oh there dear. You go. There you go. So let's let's bring this back to how we're going to deal with the challenges related to climate change. Do you think? this can really affect how we deal with the climate crisis, like cutting out this pollution? I mean, how is this going to really help us? I, I think it comes back to that ultimate idea of how do we take action? You can send out a, a million petitions, you can get a billion people to sign them, but what happens when they're on, it's their downtime, when they decide how seriously they're going to take this, or they're on the fence and how, how much does it push them to really believing in facts, or do they just keep sitting on the fence? And I really do think it's it's not complicated. I know a lot of the things we talked about are, you know, it's a system level complicated thing, but it does come back to a very simple idea of, can we take action together? How are we going to respond to these threats? How are we going to respond to the, the collective lion predator of our time, which climate change should be at the top of the list uh, from an existential perspective? How do we how do we make sure that we can act together and and agree I, that the lion is a dangerous thing as opposed to well you know exactly. lions aren't really that dangerous I mean there's a yeah. second point of view on this I mean yeah <laughs> and if you're having uh, the the volume pe- people just I don't think appreciate how again because of the business model how profitable it is to I don't know have thirty percent of the ecosystem saying. That's not a lion. That's Bob who made it out of paper mache, and he's just out trying to trick you. It's not a lion at all. Burn the lion. Like make more lions. I don't know. Like just these wild conspiracy theories. The example I can give. There's so many of them. But are people aware that when there was all the the hysteria around reopening the U.S. right when there were the protests happening in the red states, it was estimated that around half or more than half of the posts happening on Twitter that were aggressively saying we should reopen, this is stifling, you know, my, my free movement, what have you. Those are bots. Sorry, when you're talking about reopening, you mean re- reopening yeah, because of coronavirus? Open, yeah, from coronavirus. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So so people, it's it's influencing the real world and how we deal with it. So things. you mean all of those comments were bots basically being programmed just to say that? Yeah, stir the, stir the pot, you know, business business incentives. So there might be one or two people stirring the pot. Uh, yeah, of Russian course. Russian so, bots making sure more Americans died. We nice. don't know if that's the case, but you can imagine... It's like a welcome mat for for psyops, which yeah. you know, just how can you how can you corrupt the population and make sure that they don't act in their self interest, and how do you make sure that collectively we don't actually act on the threats we need to act on? So, again, coming back full circle, uh, like you said, how does this really affect or deal with the climate crisis? Well, really, are we going to do something about it, and are we going to have the means to do it and think straight to do it? I hope you're enjoying this episode of the 21st Century Imperative Podcast. We've certainly enjoyed producing it. As you know, 21st Century is a not-for-profit venture, but we still have production costs. So to help cover these costs, we've launched a new online store with all proceeds going to cover production. And we have some great products for you. We have organic, fair trade t-shirts and hoodies, as well as non-toxic, BPA-free coffee containers, all with great graphics. So if you like the podcast, please think about helping us out by buying a t-shirt, hoodie, or mug for you and one for each of your friends. Head over to our website at tfcipodcast.com and click on the 21st Century Store button. Generalizing from your own experience and beyond information pollution, what do you think are the biggest challenges and barriers to coming to grips with how to meet the realities of climate change mm-hmm. and to driving large-scale action. 
I would think that it is ultimately more of the pragmatic impact I talked about. We ultimately need systemic solutions. It's fine for us to talk about these issues, but we need to do something about it. Policy is one way. And part of that policy and the advocacy and the, the messaging we use is to make people get on board and make them do it out of their own interest. Because if we come back to the idea of this information being this, the information commons rather, being this large space that is disintermediated, where you decide on the level of threats and whatnot, we need to make it more direct. We need to make it more direct for people because in that space, it's very easy to manipulate people. And we need to make it really personal and feel like, you know, when we talk about carbon credits, for example, how do we make that or electrification? How do we make all these things be something that isn't something people just passively think about? I'm like, uh, yeah, that might be a good part of my investment portfolio. Or, uh, yeah, you know, I have a responsibility to my grandchildren. How do we, how do we get them to actually go out and start pressing the representatives because they say, I want this thing. This is just, I would be stupid not to do this. Uh, you know, I'm not a fool. Let's do this. And I think the biggest challenge is when we talk about policy and we talk about fixing these systems, it's doing so in a way that will make people actually fight for it, not out of, again, not out of uh, guilt and responsibility. But unfortunately, you know, we, we, we have to be realistic about how, what, in the same way people are manipulated by this clickbait and all these things, we, you take the other side, the positive inside, and how do you, get people to be, I guess, selfish in a way that is really, really good for the world. And further to that, I mean, you're all about cutting through the noise to get to the signal. We've talked about this many times. Mm -hmm. So in the case of climate change, this is really, really important. Uh, how do you think we will be able to cut through the noise of information pollution enough to deal with climate change, to deal with the real issues related to climate change? Yeah. it's Is it, is it possible? Are we going to be able to do this? Yeah. Um, I, I think so. You know, when you're, you put a, you put a table full of greasy water in the sink and then you drop the little drop of oil and it just all disappears. Goes you mean, edges. you mean a drop of soap? Yeah. Sorry. Soap. Yeah. Not more oil. That's the opposite. Yeah. Right. Let's, okay. let's not make it worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, the dish detergent or the soap, it's the opportunity for polluting the information commons is because it is such a continuous set of nodes. We are nodes in the network. The information are nodes that are being proliferated. But the flip side of that, that makes it a vulnerability, also makes it an opportunity. Because if we can create change at a systemic level, that again, makes people more mindful of their information, makes the value of information changed. Changes in society, the tangible benefits to getting behind climate change, uh, you know, changing it. This then can proliferate in a way that that's the opportunity. So I absolutely think it's possible to get to a system where yeah, you can suddenly have this miraculous new world where where suddenly it's not just a bunch of charlatans that seem to have the spotlight all the time and, and things can be different. I, I, I do have a lot of hope and optimism, I guess, that I would have to to keep doing what I do with our platform. But I think there is there is an opportunity to have a kind of almost like a rewilding of our minds where we talk about how during the pandemic nature returned to places or if, if humans were to disappear. I think in our Th that's minds, a lovely concept, a rewilding, go, going back to what it was like before clickbait. Exactly. I I don't think people reading a book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, or or spending most of your time on I don't know long form philosophical pieces than uh, than just stuff that's existing for the sake of existing uh, and eating your time. I really, 
feel like people don't realize how bad it is because of how gradual it was and how constant it was. So if we go back 20 years, it's only really been 20 years. And we've just been constantly fed this one version of the world, which says this is the way it has to be. This is the way we're going to treat your attention. This is the way we're going to monetize it. This is how you're going to feel all the time. And we're so used to that, that I think, can you imagine the, the fresh air that it would feel like to, to spend your time and not be bombarded left, right, and center with just junk? junk. Yeah. yeah. And that, that, that gives me hope because I think it's very possible. And I, I think when we get that, that breath of fresh air, it would, it would blow our minds. Yeah, that's a nice thought. A, a world where people are, uh, it, it feels like people are thinking again, you know? Yeah. Rather than constantly saying, God, what are people thinking? And how could they? Yeah. And imagine the norm being like, uh, really, I feel like we live in good times. <laughs> it seems like people are on, on the whole, there, there's some critical thinking happening. How nice. Yeah. And by the way, kudos to you for redocracy, because I think you're putting your money where your ideas are in a really meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And and what we'll do, by the way, Mario, is we'll put a link to Redocracy. Is there a, a link that can take people in to sort of show them how it works and so forth? Yeah, so our, our landing page is a pretty decent place. You can also learn about the teams and if you're a publisher, how to embed it. So that, that's all good on our landing page. And you know, we can figure something out. I can also provide you with a, with a quick demo video in case people just want to watch it directly. Yeah, so yeah. what we'll put that in the show notes so people can get an understanding of it. Yeah, sure. At this point in the podcast conversation, I usually ask my guest what advice they would offer to listeners about what listeners can do to be part of making a difference and meeting the challenge of the 21st century imperative and maintaining hope. But I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. I'm going to ask you, what advice you'd offer listeners about what they can do to be part of reducing the system pollution, mm -hmm. the, the information pollution, mm -hmm. because we're going to have to do that in order to make the difference in the 21st century imperative. So that's sort of your, yeah. your expertise. So what do you think? Um, I think it ultimately, if there's one thing I would, I would advise and ask is to make an effort to become more information mindful. I would assume most of your listeners have some sort of interest in their physical and food diets. I would ask them to start taking how they feed their minds just as seriously. So like, what does that look like? So whether you use Redocracy or some other solution to, to introduce things into your information flow, how you consume news and whatnot, that make you think twice. And, and at the most basic level, that's even just activating screen time on your phone. That, that's just a simple way to start. That doesn't tell you how you're feeding your mind and necessarily what's going in there, because if it tells you you spent a few hours on Instagram, sure, but what was it that was there, that'd be more helpful. But that's a great start. Do that. And I would also suggest being more intentional with your information diet. So think about it. Have you ever thought about where am I actually getting most of my information? And in the same way somebody would say, you know, every time you have a meal, write down the number of calories it was, what, you know, the portion size, all that kind of stuff. Start thinking about doing that for a day, just a day, with your diet. And, and of course, with Redocracy, we can, we can make that all easy for you, but you don't have to use Redocracy. It's, it's just, that's what I would ask, to, to think twice and, and keep that idea in mind, because if we all do our part on that, you're already going to start thinking twice about what you share. You're going to think twice about polluting your mind with misinformation that you accidentally slipped to somebody else. And that, that collectively, we can make a lot of change together. That's good advice. So finally, to wrap up, I'd like to ask three rapid-fire questions. The first question is, what books related to these issues do you most often recommend or gift to people? 
the book I most often recommend, I'm just grabbing it here without ripping the microphone out of my headset here. The, um, the book I often recommend is Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. Uh, when we talk about the field of media ecology, which is either, you know, we're really inspired by it, directly in it or adjacent to it, uh, it's Marshall McLuhan. Of know, course. Good Canadian. And yeah. And uh, and then after him is Neil Postman, which less, fewer people know about. And so he has this book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And if you don't mind, actually, I'd really like to read the foreword because it is very, very short. And it should really, I think, let all your readers know exactly why they should read this. Go for it. What's amazing about this book is it was actually meant to talk about the age of television and the attention economy then. And accidentally, it ended up being even more appropriate uh, for where we are now. For the internet, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's prophetic. It's incredible. It, it came out. So was Marshall in, uh, McLuhan too. Yeah. Also, all of that media stuff. Just incredibly yeah. profound in <laughs> in his understanding we, what we're in now. We talk about the media being the message. I, I think it's really important to say the medium is the society ultimately, right? So this came out in 1985, and so amazingly ahead of its time. So the forward. We were keeping our eye on 1984. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else the terror had happened, we, at least, had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. Right, 1984, the book. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Right. And I'll jump ahead to just say, what Orwell feared were those who had banned books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. And Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal <laughs> bumple puppy. So, wrapping up here, as Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, the civil libertarians and rationalists, who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny, fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain, but in Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. So in short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. And this book is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. So I think we have both those worlds right now. Yes, you're right. In the Western world, we have Brave New World. Yep. And in Communist China, yep. we have 1984. Yes. Yes, and what, well, what's so fascinating about what's happening in China is it's, it's 1984 with a, a tremendous sheen of Brave New World layered in and over and around it to further obfuscate yeah. you know, what's, what's going on there. Uh, so, so if you're not made passive by all the stuff, we've got the other lined up for you as well. Yeah, and conversely... <laughs> a retraining camp. <laughs> yes, and what's, conversely, what's really interesting is when you talk about surveillance capitalism and, and also how the government can make use of it, you could argue the inverse. We've got 90% Brave New World over here with a, with a bit of 1984 because it's yeah. just made so convenient and possible through you know Brave New World. Okay, so <laughs> that's got to be on everyone's reading shelf soon.
So the second question is, if you had the power to implement one change, one innovation, or one policy in cities around the world that would have the effect of significantly reducing CO2 emissions or helping cities adapt to climate change, what would it be and why? So I think uh, as per the rest of this uh, podcast we did here, uh, a bit of a curveball uh, in that, again, it would be around policies or a policy that rewards people for being responsible custodians of information and other people's attention. Whether that's tax breaks, public recognition, right? Like everyone's posturing, God, I wish, what would I do if I could get on the front page of the paper? And what would it, you know, imagine you say, well, it seems like you've been really helpful with mitigating information pollution. We're going to feature you. And this is something you normally spend $100,000 on to get this recognition. So whether it's affecting the amount of tax you have to pay, whether it's giving you public recognition, all sorts of other benefits, policies around that, that's the one thing I would want to see where cities get behind that, pressure companies to do it so that we make sure we have a nice, crisp, clean, clear thinking information. Conference. And everyone using redocracy as well. And everyone using redocracy. Yeah, that, might, that might be the easiest way to get to it. Yeah. <laughs> so third question, if you could publish a full page spread in the Sunday New York Times or the Globe and Mail, mm-hmm. Of anything you wanted, written or graphic, what would it be? Okay, so full page. I would put in giant letters, giant letters at the top. It would say in all caps, why are you wasting your attention? <laughs> and then below that, I'd include three facts. Uh, the first one would be, you will spend as much time consuming articles, podcasts, videos, and books during your life as you would studying for about two to four college degrees. What do you have to show for it? Oh, How much did great. you spend on your last degree or certificate? Can I ask you? Right. So that's the first fact in question. The second thing I put below this giant head, provocative headline. Facebook thinks that the price of monetizing your attention is worth less than $25 a year. If you look at their uh, numbers, that's less than one cent per hour. What's the minimum wage again? <laughs> it depends on if it's a Canada or United States. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it's a heck of a lot more than that. <laughs> Finally, you care about your physical health and staying in shape. When was the last time you worked on your information diet? How are you filling your mind for six to eight hours a day? What would a Fitbit for your content consumption look like? So I'd have that taking up about two thirds of the page and at the bottom, in a second set of large font, again, all caps, I would put, imagine a world where influence was earned by being well-informed and helpful. And then I would just write below that to really help people uh, imagine and dream and salivate at the idea of no ignorant inflammatory politicians, no super spammers, no cheap clickbait, no knee-jerk trolls, just a spotlight full of well-thought-out, considerate, balanced voices. We don't just have to imagine. No, that, that would be my full-page spread. That's awesome. I would hope that could, you know, on its own, get some people talking. Okay, okay. You know what we have to do is we have to put this in the show notes. Like, we have to design a graphic <laughs> like this. I know yes. you have no time to do this whatsoever. No, I'm all for it. I would enjoy it. That would be awesome. This yep. is brilliant. Then this is to, perfect. Then we have to petition. Do you know what? You should put this in readocracy because this is the this is like another way of saying this is why you need readocracy. Yeah. Okay, so thanks for that. Is there is there anything 
that you would like to ask of our listeners? Uh, selfishly, beyond, you know, the, I guess, advice I gave directly and indirectly, I would just say, um, if you could check out Readocracy, if you could join us in our movement, if not that, if you could read our blog where we talk about all these things in depth, and if you could pass it on so that we can, uh, again, create a society that's a bit more information mindful and get on the right track so we can actually have a chance at solving the, the big problems facing us. That's what I would ask, if you can, if you can get involved in Readocracy. Okay, so as, as we talked about earlier, let's put a link to the Readocracy page so mm-hmm. they can really see how cool it is and how smart it is. With pleasure. And um, finally, can you tell listeners uh, how they can reach you? if they want to continue the conversation or find out more about you. Absolutely. Uh, Twitter address or LinkedIn, Instagram, do you want to? Yeah, um, all of those things. So um, on LinkedIn, it's just my name. So if you look up Mario Vasilescu, you'll find me at Redocracy. And then on Twitter and Instagram, myself, my handle across all social services is the number one, and then the letters U-P-M. And it comes from, uh, you guessed it, Super Mario, one up, <laughs> one up them. How can we help people one up? That's my thing. So it's just the number one, UP. So one up and then M for Mario. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram there. That's fantastic. Yeah. And if you want to connect with Redocracy on Instagram and Twitter, we're also just at Redocracy. Fantastic. Well, we'll we'll put those in the show notes as well. Awesome. Thanks very much, Mario. This was a lot of fun and yeah. very, very informative. Thanks. Thank you so much for this. I've been looking forward to it for a while um, and I really appreciate the opportunity. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we've discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website and by sponsoring the podcast on our Patreon sponsor page at patreon.com forward slash tfcipodcast. This podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support from people like you. So... If you find our podcast interesting and valuable, please consider becoming a patron. Your sponsorship will not only help us cover the cost of production, but we will also be spending 50 cents of every sponsorship dollar to plant trees. To do this, we have formed a partnership with Community Forest International, who will not only be planting seedlings for you, but taking care of them to make sure they continue to grow and absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So please head over to the Patreon page and become a sponsor. Until next time, thanks for listening.